Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Of all the things that we don't know, the one thing that I think we can say with a degree of certainty is that the air of invincibility around Putin has come crashing down. I'm Wes Kosova. Today on The Big Take, I talked to Bloomberg's Flavia Krauss-Jackson about the insurrection in Russia. What does it mean for Vladimir Putin's hold on power and the war in Ukraine? Flavia, I think we all watch these extraordinary events unfold in Russia over the weekend. We have an armed insurrection that came within 200 miles of Moscow. And now a lot of questions about whether Vladimir Putin is weakened and if so, how far he might go to restore his grip on power. You've been covering this story around the clock this weekend. How did this happen? I mean, Vladimir Putin essentially managed to avert an attack on Moscow at the very last hour, an attack that saw what was once of his closest allies, the head of the mercenary Wagner group, Yevgeny Prigozhin, and who, in an extraordinary move, was leading a group of his own fighters directly to the capital. There had been some loose talk calling it an alleged coup, but I think here precision is actually very important. It was definitely an insurrection, a mutinous act, but a coup has a very, very specific meaning in Russia of all places. It implies an overthrow of actually the president. And as much as Prigozhin was kicking off, he was very much saying, hey, I'm marching to Moscow, this march of justice, but it was never phrased or couched as, I'm going to get rid of Putin. It was very much, I need to take the law in my own hands and deal with the Ministry of Defense myself, because they are not doing the job they should be doing on the ground. As the crisis became closer and closer to Putin himself inside the Kremlin, there was great disbelief at just how Prigozhin and his men were able to get so close, to the point that the authorities had to essentially put the entire city into lockdown, putting out the Moscow mayor out there. Barricades came up and troops were brought in. And that left Putin essentially having to work the phones and try and work out who, whether he still had support amongst his allies. What we know from our reporting is that insiders in Moscow, close to Putin, were just absolutely stunned that he had let this go so far. Is he really as strong as we've always believed him to be? And suddenly the air of invincibility around him has come crumbling down. Putin came out and said all was forgiven. He was going to drop all charges. And Prigozhin was going to be going next door to Belarus. And the president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, who's a very close ally to Putin, also released a statement saying that he'd acted as an intermediary. Now, this, of course, raises all sorts of questions. How willingly did Prigozhin go? Will he actually go? Because, in fact, he's gone completely quiet since making this announcement. We don't know where he is right now. 
We don't. And the other things that we don't know is what becomes of Wagner and his army of, of mercenaries. Putin has said none of Prigozhin's troops would be punished too. Exactly. And that in itself is almost unprecedented. Vladimir Putin is not a man who forgives or forgets. He's got a long track record of punishing people who turn on him. And no one has defied him so openly and so aggressively as Prigozhin. In the lead up to all this, Prigozhin had kept getting more and more angry, more and more vocal in his criticism. And Prigozhin has been making a lot of videos on Telegram, this social media platform where he's denouncing Russian generals. He's denouncing the defense minister, saying that they are losing the war, accusing them of not giving his own mercenary troops enough support in their effort to help the Russians in Ukraine. And he has been increasingly vocal, but never directly criticizing Putin. Absolutely. And I think that's a very important point to unpick. Uh, One of the threads and some of the speculation that we've been following is, was Putin allowing this to happen because the war wasn't going well and he was looking for someone to scapegoat? So in a way, having the military establishment at each other's throats and using Prigozhin as a way to sort of play it out gave him some kind of cover for just how badly the war was going. But I think what the events on the ground show um, is just how little control he had over him. This, This creature, this Frankenstein's monster is what diplomats have been calling and the cables that we've seen as the Western officials try to make sense of what's going on really describe a scenario of like, hold on a second, did Putin actually think he had more control over this guy than he actually did? So there was a dawning realization of how did this actually get so out of hand that he was marching towards the capital, bringing convoys of heavily armed fighters to the capital. Now, part of what we've unveiled in our reporting is that Prigozhin was absolutely furious. He was vocal about this. And his ire was particularly directed to the Russian defense minister, a very public figure who he is held responsible for all the failings of the war in Ukraine that, as you recall, began February 24th, 2022 and that Putin at the time had expected to literally be able to waltz into Kiev and conquer the country overnight. And instead, all the deficiencies of that war have come in the stark relief. And Prigozhin's own men, these mercenary fighters who worked for him in the Wagner group, were fighting alongside Russian military in Ukraine. And he felt like they were not getting the support that they needed from the Russian generals. Exactly. I mean, Prigozhin commands a vast army of guns for hire, and he has enormous power over them. And he has felt very passionately about this war and has aligned himself next to the hardliners that think and believe that Putin should go in much harder, mass conscriptions and play much more of a hardball game. Now, this really reveals the internal tensions within the military establishment in in Russia itself. And where is Putin headed? Is he going to be listening to the hardliners? Or is he going to be listening more to the Russia elite who are much more concerned about a the, the course of the war, how badly it's going, and want Putin to negotiate a peace? And so the question here then becomes, is Putin being forced potentially to take a much even harder line position than perhaps he had done so far? And Flavia, when Prigozhin and his men were moving toward Moscow, Putin went on television and gave this very stark warning saying, 
anyone who's involved in this is going to be harshly punished. And in the end, of course, there was no punishment. Prigozhin was allowed to go to Belarus under this deal, and the charges against his men were dropped. Correct. It's very hard to square the peg on this one. How does one go in the space of very few hours threatening the man who's essentially armed an insurrection against you, going on state television, telling millions of Russians, we will hold him to account. This is treason. This is unacceptable. And just as quickly, all for all of that to go away. The fact that this does not fit into the narrative of how Putin really deals with his enemies immediately raises the issue of, well, is he actually as strong uh, as we believe him to be or maybe as he thinks he is? And indeed, what were the things in this deal that we still do not know? One of the main issues is, to what extent did Putin have to capitulate? And we started to see Western authorities, including the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, saying that this was a direct challenge to Putin's power. Absolutely. And our own sourcing within the U.S. intelligence community sort of points out that the U.S., did sort of know that this was brewing and had kept it to itself. Uh, And of course, viewing it to a degree with interest, naturally, but also suspicion, because if you remove Putin, you don't necessarily know what that will lead to. After the break, why the Putin-Prigozhin relationship was so important for both men. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Flavia, maybe we should take a minute and talk about this relationship between Prigozhin and Putin, because I don't think you can overstate just how important Putin is to Prigozhin and Prigozhin is to Putin. You're absolutely right, Wes. And I think we've got to like really take their relationship and go back a little bit in history. Significantly, they're both from St. Petersburg with different backgrounds, obviously, but both tough guys. Prigozhin, an ex-convict, small-time crook who was put in prison for stealing. Once he emerged from prison, began a restaurant business, started selling hot dogs on the streets, 
there is speculation about when Putin and Prigozhin, when they may have met, we believe possibly in the early 90s. But what we do know is that once Prigozhin got into the restaurant business after selling hot dogs in the streets, um, this restaurant became a very popular place that Putin himself enjoyed going to and also French President uh, Chirac. Um, and I believe he might have even hosted you know, President George W. Bush. So that is the degree of fame that he reached to the point that he became popularly known as Putin's chef. That is not a derogative term, of course. Um, it gave Prigozhin incredible access to the Kremlin. In fact, he was frequently seen side by side next to Putin, serving him soup and serving the entire elite and the inner circle, the inner sanctum of Putin. And so that is where his journey from small-time crook to Putin's right-hand man begins. Having made his name in the restaurant business and getting that kind of access to Putin, he was able to leverage his restaurant into lucrative government contracts that Putin handed over to him to feed the army, to feed businesses, and that turned him overnight into a millionaire. And then we get perhaps to the most significant second chapter of Prigozhin's rise to power, and that is the formation of the Wagner Group, which he founded in 2014, and which at its peak had about 50,000 mercenary recruits. Now, what's very interesting about this is that until 2022, Prigozhin denied even having anything to do with this group. And what exactly is the Wagner Group? They're guns for hire, put very, very simply. And they became incredibly important to Putin as Putin decided to establish his tentacles of power outside of Russia. So specifically in Syria, when there were the Arab uprisings and there was an attempt to overthrow President Assad, that is when Putin decided to get personally involved. Having seen what happened to Colonel Gaddafi in Libya and having blamed the West for that debacle, he became personally very preoccupied with the overreach of the US and its European allies and decided that he could no longer sit back and watch. And so when it came to Syria, where there was a civil war to try and unseat the president, Putin decided to personally get involved. And that is where Prigozhin's Wagner Group began what became and what he was able to leverage into an entire mercenary empire across the Middle East and across Africa in places like the Central African Republic. And so the U.S. and other allies have said that the Wagner mercenaries operate with Putin's knowledge and allow him a certain amount of deniability because they're not official Russian military. Exactly. It's been a relationship that's been mutually convenient to both because Prigozhin has been able to enrich himself even further uh, and Putin has plausible deniability. Now, of course, this highly influential group that has been playing such a key role in Ukraine was earlier this year designated a terrorist group by the U.S., a recognition of its sheer influence and power. And the U.S. also has another complaint against Prigozhin. Of course. And this takes us back to 2016. Back in 2016, Prigozhin was running a troll farm that the U.S. has said interfered and meddled with the 2016 presidential election. Bloomberg also reports that there is some concern among Western partners of Ukraine that this could 
strengthen the hand of the hardliners who are really pushing for Russia to go even further in the war. Yes, absolutely. And here we're going to have to be very uh, mindful of any kind of divisions that we may see in the Western alliance. The US, of course, seemed to have had a tip off and knew what was going on. But other allies like Germany and Italy were caught completely by surprise. And one of the questions, however, that they as a collective, as they try and work out how far to shore up Ukraine, is what are we going against here? an increasingly erratic Putin, who with his back to the wall, decides to double down even further in Ukraine, taking the kind of radical steps that are terrifying, be it nuclear threats, be it it blowing up a nuclear plant, be it forcing lots of Russian men into mass conscriptions. And that raises the stakes in a war that has already tested that unity in the Western world. What has also been very clear in the past couple of months as the war in Ukraine has gone very wrong for Russia, certainly not the way uh, Putin could have expected and anticipated when he thought he would conquer Kiev within a few days, and here we are 16 months later, is that there are very real tensions within Russian society and within the elite, which we have written about before. There is some who think, listen, this is not going very well. Let's cut our losses. And let's try and find a face-saving way to end this war. And then you have your hardliners and your hawks that are saying, hold on, no, Russia does not turn back. We do not capitulate. So there is a real tension within the establishment with Putin right at the top trying to decide which way to go. And the thinking is that Prigozhin, having been amongst the most critical people involved in the war and saying we really need to up the stakes, that he wouldn't have necessarily made this a front without a little bit of guidance or at least a nod from someone within the establishment. So this brings the big question of what does Putin do next? And here we need to question some of the assumptions that we've made about where the war in Ukraine is headed. When we come back, what this turmoil could mean for the war in Ukraine. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. 
title sponsor, Amazon, official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. One of the ways that Putin has kept his grip on power is through fear. People are afraid that if they cross him, terrible things will happen to them, and there are many examples of that. Is there a risk for Putin that people will no longer fear him, that that some weaknesses have been exposed? There is no doubt that the weaknesses have been exposed, and that is the kind of public narrative that someone like Putin will react very poorly too. There is that oft-told story that Putin himself has encouraged that we're not quite sure how apocryphal it is of the cornered rat. What happens to the rat in the corner of the room feeling under assault? It goes on the attack. And that is something that I think is worth bearing in mind in terms of trying to preempt or read how Putin will react. And another important point is that Putin's trajectory as a leader, one has to remember that this was someone who came in and was part of the group of eight community. And that at some stage in his long career was seen as someone that the international community could work with. Um, And he has obviously become increasingly sort of radicalized. And the pandemic has perhaps accentuated all those tendencies. Uh, Russia has become an incredibly closed society. Putin increasingly much more of an isolated figure. It's really unclear who he listens to and who has any degree of influence over him. And indeed, to what degree is he still in control? And what happens now to the Wagner group? If Prigozhin is in exile, there are troops in many other countries. What happens to that organization? I think that's the big unanswerable question. And because Prigozhin himself has gone completely quiet, it's one that I think it will become clearer in the coming days and weeks because he has built a massive empire, especially in places like the Central Africa Republic. Then it becomes a big question, what happens to this vast mercenary empire that he's built? Uh, Does it disappear with him or does it become absorbed by someone else or indeed within the Russia military apparatus? Ukraine is viewing this as a positive thing only because I guess chaos means... Putin and the establishment in Moscow might not be as laser focused in Ukraine, but have we actually seen this affect Russia's warfighting plans in Ukraine? We haven't seen any evidence of that just yet. I mean, what the reason these developments are so fascinating is because they are happening three weeks into the long-vaulted, long-talked-about Ukraine counteroffensive. And this is something that the Ukrainians are looking at to try and definitively push back Russian troops. And there's a very limited time period in which that can happen because of the weather conditions and the onset of winter. So it needs to happen within a very set number of months. And by the end of the summer, if we are still in what is essentially a war of attrition, we are then looking at a scenario of prolonged warfare. And to what extent and to what lengths will Putin go to win this war? And indeed, with the 2024 presidential elections really not that far off at this point, and the campaigning already happening 
Will Congress and indeed the White House look at events in Moscow and wonder, is now the time to help Ukraine even more because we have seen that Putin is vulnerable? Should we give our Ukrainian friends more weapons? And if that happens, how will Putin interpret that? Flavia, thanks for coming on the show. It was an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me, Wes. Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to bigtake at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Vergolina. Our senior producer and the producer of this episode is Catherine Fink. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.